Tonight, when bad news actually means good news, you're listening to Simply Money. I'm Steve Sprovec, along with Brian James, who's filling in for Amy Wagner. You know, about a month ago, we did a segment where we explained why good news can sometimes mean bad news for investors and their stocks. Tonight, we've got the opposite situation. Brian, we had some news come out last week, and, and you know, it, it, it was... Bad news, no matter how you look at it, but it wound up being good news for the stock market. Right. So uh, that good news part, hey, the S&P 500, largest country, uh, companies based in the United States, was up 6.4%. So that's a good thing, right? Market went up. Therefore, all is well. I'm, I'm picturing Kevin Bacon at the end of Animal House saying, all is well, <laughs> all is well. Nothing to fear here. Uh, so I, I, so I, why I think- did that happen? Are we out of the woods here? I, I, I think no, anything are we can, out of the woods. I don't think so. I think anything we do can relate back to Animal House. I, I, I think it's a good movie for everything in life. Yeah, absolutely. So, so why did that happen? Well, well, well one of the reasons for that is that inflation is uh, looking less negative than it was before. Did it go away overnight? Did it go poof? Of course not. No, we still have a problem and it's going to take a while to fix it. However, at some point, just like every terrible thing out there, it's always darkest just before the dawn. Everything runs in cycles. So sooner or later, it's going to clean itself up. We don't know if this is the end of it. But when we look back after it has ended, and we've moved on. This is how it will feel whenever the uh, beginning of the end happens of the chaos. So the good news was that the University of Michigan, uh, they have a survey out there. They're, they're the ones we most look uh, frequently to for any any uh, information related to consumer sentiment and confidence of uh, you know of those kinds of things so uh, the University of Michigan survey uh, lowered expectations of consumers from 3.3 percent to 3.1 percent now somebody out there is going three percent those people are nuts We're, we've got 10 percent inflation or close to it remember what this is this is a survey of consumers long-term inflation expenses not short term everybody knows what it is short term this is what do people expect in the long run? And it was, it actually had been a little higher than this, but it was 3.3%, now 3.1%. So over the long haul, people are expecting inflation to come down. This is a good sign because it wasn't that long ago we were worried that inflation was going to become uh, detached from, uh, uh, from the actual numbers, meaning that if people simply assume inflation is going to happen, it will happen. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. As we all panic, prices are going up, therefore we should go mine more. But the good good news from last week was simply that that long term expectation has come down a bit, Steve. Well, and I I think that's the key. Everything boils down to inflation expectations. If if inflation is unanchored and it just gets out of hand, bad stuff happens. I I, I mean, if you're thinking of buying a car, you know, in the next year or two, but you know that car is going to be a lot more expensive in a year or two, you might do it today, which sounds like a good thing for the economy. But that means, okay, you got it out of the way and there's no car buying for you for the next couple of years, multiplied times a couple of hundred million individuals in the country. So, you know, that that's really everything boils down to an inflation and any expectation of slightly lower inflation is a really, really good thing for the market because that that means the Fed may be able to slow down their interest rate increases. So so I, I think that's the key. But we're, we're talking about the bad news out there, which is slower growth. I, I mean, normally we want growth to be exceptional. And we had a couple of years where growth was mind-bogglingly rapid. I mean, we had GDP up 7 8% as we were coming out of the pandemic. 
But because of some of these changes going on in the economy, like housing starts, we got some news last week where housing starts and building permits, everything is slowing down in real estate uh, quite a bit, which, again, in normal times, that would be bad news. But this is kind of good news for the market and for investments. Yeah, what it means is simply that, that, that the wheels of industry keep turning, right? So we all want to react to these headlines and assume that we're all going over the cliff and, and, and everything is negative and we've never seen this before and this is beginning of the end. This happens, the world seems to end every three or four years, Steve, with, with some headline yeah, no that, uh, that the general public kind of wants to deem that, oh, this is it, this is the, uh, you know, the, 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 the foreboding of the end of the world. But anyway, uh, it, but everything moves in cycles. So the other batch of good news here, yeah, how, housing housing has uh, has not gone over the cliff right it's slowing down the, you know a lot of people want to say well uh, well that's clearly a sign that people can't afford houses uh, and and that's uh, obviously the end of, of all things but at the same time no we're, we're coming off of ridiculous housing prices remember if you're somebody who was shocked at how quickly your houses were turning over or housing in your neighborhood were turning over and talking about how much over asking price they were getting remember this is what, what it was going to look and feel like when that finally let go that is a sign, you know, if people have to spend more and more and more for houses, then they can't afford to do other things. And that's going to prevent them from buying cars. It's going to prevent them from shopping and, and doing all the things that, that keep the economic wheels turning. So thinking that way, it is not necessarily a bad thing that housing has cooled off a little bit. It's just a way of saying that, all right, investor priorities or, or regular person's priorities have shifted a little bit. We don't need that super expensive house. We're going to back off a little bit. Well, and I, I think what we're seeing here is one of the first more immediate impacts of the Federal Reserve raising interest rates. I, I mean, mortgage rates were down, in some cases, below 3% for a short period of time. Well, that same 30-year mortgage is now pushing 6%. And if you were looking at homes three months ago and hoping for a 25 3% mortgage, and all of a sudden it's 6%, you're probably thinking twice about that decision, which slows down real estate. I, I mean, that was the, I think the biggest driver of real estate prices. Why has real estate increased in value so much is because of cheap money. I mean, when you can get a two or 3% mortgage, you can afford a whole lot more house. Well, if you can afford more house, investors that are, or uh, people that are selling their homes are going to ask for more money because more people qualify for a mortgage for a higher dollar amount. You're listening to Simply Money here on 55KRC. I'm Steve Sprovac, along with Brian James, and we're talking about some of the relatively bad news that came out on the economy over the past week and why it fueled stock prices to go up. Bad news being good news. One of those items that came out last week, Brian, is, is Federal uh, Reserve Chairman Powell said, well, maybe, you know, maybe I won't be able to have a soft landing with these interest rate increases. Right. So what we want, what we would very much prefer, you know, since we have to go through some kind of a slowdown, uh, we can't let inflation run rampant. It must be stopped or it, or it will do permanent damage. That's sure. why interest rates are going up in the first place. That's the, the Federal Reserve Central Bank of the United States. That's their way of stepping on the brakes a little bit to slow down spending. So, uh, but yeah, so that's why rates are going up and probably going, continuing to go up quickly uh, with uh, the, the likelihood of a, probably another three quarter point hike here uh, at the, the next meeting at the end of July. Right now, fund our federal fund futures are pricing in about an 85% chance of that happening again. We haven't seen moves like this in a long time. 
So uh, Powell is being forced into a position where he has to raise interest rates this quickly because of how rapidly inflation uh, was increasing. It was beginning to snowball. And uh, he doesn't have a choice in the matter. But uh, there's obviously a bunch of other things happening out there. So, of course, we have the, the, the war in uh, the Ukraine is, uh, is, is having a major impact on natural resource costs and things like that. Lots of things we can't control. We never did completely fix the supply chain. Uh, issue. I think they really, 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 really wanted this to fix itself before they acted, but that didn't happen. And then they had to act quickly and more decisively uh, when that happened. So, uh, yeah, there, there's more, certainly more to come on that. But at, at this point, we're looking at probably some turbulence ahead for sure. Well, and, and the news came out last week that that Russia, and I, I don't think this surprises anybody, but uh, they've been, you know, going out the back door selling uh, a lot of oil to both China and India, uh, which uh, caught a, a few people off guard. But I, I think the world is kind of looking the other way, because as long as that supply continues to get out there, whether it's on a black market or or up front, um, that's more supply, and that helps bring the overall cost of crude down somewhat. And and you know when when gas prices have been screaming upward like they have, I I think most people at the pump are saying I don't care what's going on behind the scenes as long as this uh, price of a gallon of gas drops somewhat, I'm I'm happy with it. So you know that's a case where you know you you can actually make an argument for how that impacts the stock market because if inflation needs to come down for your investments to recover some value, well, if the price of energy uh, drops down or even doesn't go up as quickly, that's going to reduce inflation and and help your and my stock market uh, values. All right. So oil was as high as $123 in the middle of June, just a few weeks ago. That's when we were all driving by the United Dairy Farmers looking at that number going, wow, I've just never seen it that yeah. high. Uh, but since then, it's pulled back to as low as about $101. Uh, and then mo- most recently, now it's settled at 107 as of last Friday. So definitely down. We haven't yet seen it come down significantly at the pump, but it's also off its peak. So the thing to remember is that when it eventually does pull back, this is what it will feel like. You won't believe it until it does. Uh, until we've seen it for a good long time. So why is this happening? Well, right now, because we, we have, there's still all the same things that drove it up in the first place are still in place. However, uh, the, the White House is purporting that uh, that Russia is selling oil to China and India. Remember, China and India aren't exactly on board with the sanctions that the rest of the world has levied against Russia. So uh, the belief is that Russia may be selling more oil to those companies that are willing to look the other way on its uh, ridiculous and terrible behavior. Uh, and that is balancing out demand. Therefore, China and India are, are not demanding from other sources, which is which is enabling the company, the countries who are imposing sanctions to buy, uh, to bring in more oil, lower cost. Again, slight changes, but this is what it will look and feel like whenever we we hit the the end of all of this craziness. Well, and I, I don't think there's any any discussion about uh, at least in the near term gasoline coming back to $2.10 a gallon. But that's not what inflation is. Inflation is the increase in prices. So even if gas is $5 a gallon, if it doesn't increase above $5 a gallon, that's 0% inflation, at least for the price of gasoline. So, you know, anything that keeps the price from increasing dramatically going forward is going to be good news. I, You know what worries me, though, Brian, is that one of the items, and, and this could be a negative uh, for the, the stock market, 
Um, we haven't really seen an adjustment of corporate earnings downward. I, I mean, when interest rates are increased, that means the cost of borrowing is higher for corporations, which probably is going to impact earnings. Yet we really haven't seen that reduction in earnings estimates. And if we do see a reduction in earnings estimates, that can be considered a negative for the stock market. For sure, for sure. And, and you know, I, when I look around the city, when I look around, uh, you know, what's going on with, with companies, the companies are generally investing and behaving like they would in, a, in an up market. They know yeah. there are risks to the investments that they would make. But, you know, what I'm looking at right now is noticing over the weekend, there is a ton of construction going on. I'm up in Liberty Township and uh, there's there's houses going up all over the place. So somebody is looking at things saying, OK, uh, it's okay to proceed on these. We don't need to shut it all down like we did in 2008. Remember when we had we had skeletal remains of houses uh, when real estate fell apart back yeah. then? Well, they're plowing ahead. So times may be bumpy, but it's not as bad as it was back then, for sure. Here's a Simply Money point. While the market will likely remain volatile, some recent bad news is actually fueling some good news for investors. Coming up, remember all of those folks who invested in meme stocks during the pandemic? They've just suddenly disappeared. We'll search for them next. You're listening to Simply Money on 55KRC, the talk station. You're listening to Simply Money. I'm Steve Sprovac along with Brian James. If you can't listen to Simply Money every night, subscribe to our weekly podcast, The Best of Simply Money, on the iHeart app or wherever you find your podcast. Straight ahead of 643, a couple of key principles to follow if you want to retire sooner rather than later. You know, Brian, this kind of bugged me after three decades in downtown Cincinnati. Saks Fifth, uh, Fifth Avenue, that's that's the last real department store downtown Cincinnati. Um, they're leaving. They're closing up. Yeah, big deal. I remember being a kid and uh, it was a big deal to come downtown. That was fancy shopping time when you uh, came downtown with mom and grandma and grandpa and whatever, and you had to get slightly dressed up. Maybe not fancy, but it wasn't, uh, you know, wasn't like going to Van Lunen's uh, down the street either. But in any case, yeah, Saks Fifth Avenue is closing. Uh, a lot of people might not have even been aware it was still there because it definitely, uh, definitely uh, sells to a select uh, a group of people who, who are looking for a little bit more upscale. So on one hand, it's always sad to see things we've come to, to you know, uh, to, to expect to always be there to go away. But I think what, what, uh, what might be making this hit a little bit harder, it feels like there's a string of the, the exodus of retail from that yeah. downtown area. Yeah. So Brooks Brothers isn't there anymore. Tiffany's had that uh, that real cool little spot there right across from Fountain Square, and that's no longer there. They moved up to, to Kenwood Town Center. So, But if you think about it, I don't think this is necessarily a bad thing because think of that part of town, right? So what has been costing Cincinnati a lot of opportunities is a lack of a good place to have conventions. And we have ample uh, resources or ample examples of that over the, the, the last time period here. Uh, but this is gonna open up one more opportunity down there. And the Millennium Hotel is now, of course, in play. There's other buildings that are less occupied. That whole square, or that whole few blocks is opening up. It's gonna change a lot over the next few years. Hey, and I'm kind of surprised because so many suburbanites have moved to downtown Cincinnati and, and they're losing you know, their ability to shop retail there. That, that kind of surprised me. The chief strategy officer at uh, Cincinnati's uh, Chamber of Commerce says he thinks it's gonna be an incredible opportunity uh, to do something big with the space. I guess that's what he kind of has to say, but 
I just I have a hard time seeing the last department store downtown closing up be, being a positive. And anyway, it was all the craze in 2021. We we're talking about it a lot on this show. Meme stocks and, and you know, GameStop and, and AMC Entertainment. Well, guess what? The folks that drove that craze, they're bailing out, aren't they? Yeah, it's time to be done with meme stocks, apparently. So I, I remember this was a fun thing to watch during uh, COVID when we all had a bunch of time, a bunch of extra time on our hands because we couldn't leave the house. So, but anyway, uh, fun meaning I'm always fascinated, as I'm sure you are, Steve, by people making bad financial decisions. First off, <laughs> it amazing. keeps me employed. I appreciate that. Yeah. So it puts food on my table. But but now I'm a, I'm a user of Reddit. I like Reddit. There's a lot of great information on there. And I and I was aware of that Wall Street bet site uh, for a long time. And it was just interesting to say, wow, these people are pulling money out of their 401ks, their core investment holdings, and throwing money at GameStop, which my 10-year-old son at the time was telling me he thought was going to go out of business because, Dad, we all download games. We're not buying games anymore. Yeah. But that's what a meme stock was. People got excited about it. And it's no different than the old boiler room pump and dump schemes, right? It used to be that uh, that if you were a, a nefarious character, you might hire a bunch of people to dial the phone and get random investors excited about some stock to therefore drive up the price. And then you would sell it before uh, before before it came down next. Well, now it's the exact same thing, just getting people on the internet uh, excited about uh, stocks that really don't have a story behind them at all. And, and I knew it was mainstream when, you know, as the world was slowly reopening back up, a few of us went out to, to lunch uh, at a place down the street here, and I heard a bunch of people at the next table talking about sticking it to the man, and I just bought GameStop, or I just bought AMC. And, and what they were trying to do was they were trying to show the real big short sellers, the people that are trying to make money when a stock goes down, they were trying to hurt the big institutional investors. And, you know, after doing this for decades, I'm thinking to myself, you know what? The average guy buying two or $300 worth of stock is not going to stick it to anybody with billions and, and, and tons of money in, in the market because their liquidity can outlast yours. And I knew this was going to have a bad ending. That's kind of what we're seeing now. I mean, GameStop is it's still above $100 a share, but it was uh, $250 a share about about a year ago. AMC Entertainment was as high as uh, 61 bucks. It's around 13 lately. And both of those stocks are still heavily shorted. In other words, a lot of people have sold those shares to buy them cheaper later, which means those people think they're going to drop even further from this point. Start talking whenever you're ready. Yeah, and, and it's always tempting to look at these uh, as a solution, right? So we all have in our heads that uh, all I need is a bigger pile of money and all my problems will be solved. Well, the quickest way to a giant pile of money is to win the lottery or to invest in something that grows by a bazillion percent. Uh, and that's why people are attracted to this kind of thing. But you know, I think back to the late 90s when it was Beanie Babies. And then it was, then it was uh, you know, there's there have been any number of silly things along the way. Uh, you know, in, in real estate, you know, more realistic investments, but still a bubble is a bubble is a bubble. Um, but uh, but that's we're seeing the unwinding of a lot of the speculation. The other yeah. big area for this is cryptocurrency. And again, something that is is going to be a real thing. Cryptocurrency is a real thing, but it's been nothing but a speculative tool. No different than the meme stocks. That's all it's getting treated as. There's nothing currency about it. But we are seeing investors uh, revolting and going back to more traditional things now. 
Well, and I, I, I think it was to be expected because a lot of people had time on their hands, a few extra bucks, weren't going out to dinner, and what the heck, let's play play the market. And I, I think what what's most telling is they're not buying the dip. When these drops are happening, they're not going out and taking advantage of them. So it looks to me, and Goldman Sachs is, is really the group that, that's doing a lot of research on this, that they're just um, the smaller investors just staying completely out of getting back uh, in. Here's a simply money point. The simply money point is simple. Don't say we didn't warn you. We said months ago this is something that was going to end badly, and so far it looks like we're right. Coming up, so you've signed your will and power of attorney. You're good to go, right? Well, our Amy Wagner is in to explain one more step to take, and it's a really important one coming up next. You're listening to Simply Money on 55KRC, the talk station. You're listening to Simply Money. I'm Amy Wagner along with Steve Sprovac. Maybe you've got your will in place, your powers of attorney, and you think, check, I've got it all taken care of. My estate planning is done. Well, there's a step in this process you may have forgotten, and it is a very important one. Joining us tonight to explain what that is, what you need to know, is our estate planning expert, Mark Reckman from the law firm of Wood and Lamping. Mark, you say there's a step in this process that is often forgotten. Well, that's right. Uh, you, you sign your will, you, maybe you sign your trust, and you think you're all set, right? Well, not so fast. Uh, there really is one final step, uh, and Amy, that step's real important. Let's talk about what that step is, because, you know, Mark, you've seen the statistics, and I think there's more people getting wills written now post-pandemic you know, than, than there certainly were before. So we, we understand the importance of that step, but what is it that we're missing here? Well, it's important to understand what a will does. Uh, And a will is actually not the only way to designate a beneficiary. There are other ways. Uh, And when you check this out, what you will learn is that the will only affects assets that are titled in my name alone. Uh, But, you know, my assets are often not titled in my name alone. And if I have assets that are not titled in my name alone, they will not be affected by the will. Uh, your will does not affect assets that, that you own jointly with another person, does not affect your retirement accounts, does not affect your life insurance, does not affect annuities. All of those assets have their own beneficiary designation process. Um, and just to make things extra complicated, Ohio also allows uh, you to put a separate beneficiary designation on your home, bank accounts, stocks, bonds, cars. Kentucky is a little less generous in the use of this beneficiary designation process, but some of these things are available in Kentucky as well. Mark, I've heard horror stories of people who have drawn up their will, thought they put everything in it, um, but not updated beneficiary. So say they've gotten divorced or something has changed. They no longer want that 401k, that IRA, whatever it is to go to that person. Yet years ago, they designated that person as the beneficiary and Lo and behold, that's who the money goes to. Well, that's exactly right, Amy. And I think back to my first day on the job when I was a kid just getting out of law school and sitting in the HR office filling out that stack of paperwork that you fill out when you start your new job. Yeah. And there was a benefit for a $10,000 life insurance policy, right? And at, at that point, I wrote my mother's name in there. But I, had, I was not married and uh, I hadn't even met my wife at that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I put my mother in there as the beneficiary of my life insurance policy. Now, I'm still working that same job. Yes. Uh, Forty-five years later, I'm still <laughs> at the same company. And I met my wife. I got married. I signed a will that leaves everything to my wife. 
And I sort of whistled uh, from that point forward until one day it dawned on me, you know, I never went back and changed the beneficiary on that life insurance policy. Yeah. Um, so I did that. I went back to HR, asked for a new beneficiary designation form, and filled that out for my wife. Because the important takeaway here is that my will does not affect the disposition of my life insurance. My life insurance has its own beneficiary designation. And if I want my assets to go to my wife, but my life insurance policy is payable to somebody else, my wife's not going to get the life insurance policy. Absolutely. And I think that's a preconceived notion is they, th- you know, the will and people, you know, all the stories of they, they signed the will on their deathbed and it was taken care of. Well, it doesn't matter. This, these beneficiary designations supersede your will. And it's incredibly important to understand that. Well, and nowadays, Amy, as you know better than I, a large amount of people's personal wealth is tied up in either their home or their retirement account. And the retirement account does not pass under the will. You have to have your own beneficiary designation there. You know, it's almost like, Mark, you know, to your point, you've got your home, you've got your 401ks, you've got other retirement accounts, maybe you've got your other assets that are in your will. Um, your entire estate, and I hate to use that word because I think when we say estate, there's so many people who picture this like sort of sprawling uh, home with a big moat around it or whatever and say, I don't have that, so I don't need to do estate planning. You know, everyone, if you own a home or any a car, anything, right, you own property. But how do you make sure that all those pieces truly fit together? so that what you ultimately want to happen when you're no longer here really does? You start with a list. So you sit down and you make a list of everything you own, and you take that with you to the attorney's office. And when you design the will and execute the will, you go over that list with your lawyer and find out which of these assets are covered by the will and which of these assets do I have to now go out and fill out beneficiary designation forms. Amy, it's not hard um, it is a bit of a nuisance, I suppose, in the sense that you it's have to go online. It's maybe just tedious, and... right? Thank you. That's right. Um, most of these uh, beneficiary forms are available online, so it's not hard, um, but it's really important. You also mentioned the fact that you're our home, and for many of us, that's one of the largest investments we'll ever make. We usually don't have it just in our name. If we're married, it's in the spouse's name as well. So how do you account for your home, property like that, when you pass away? Well, there's a couple of different ways you can handle real estate. You can own it jointly with your spouse, in which case, actually, you can own it jointly with anyone. doesn't have to be your spouse. could be your sister. could be your child. So you can own it jointly with a, a co-owner, which means that whoever dies first, the survivor gets the house. Um, or I can leave a house titled in my name and fill out something we call a transfer on death beneficiary designation. Um, And this is a document I get from the lawyer. And what it says is, when I die, I want my house to go to my two children. Now, what's nice about the TOD beneficiary form is that I'm not putting my kid's name on the deed. They don't become co-owners. I don't need their signature to conduct business on my house. They are the beneficiaries at my death. And I can change my mind anywhere along the way. And they don't get the house until I'm gone. So I maintain control. Um, but at the same time, I've got a designation on the house that means it doesn't have to go through the probate administration process. Therefore, it's also not subject to the terms of the will. You know, now, Mark- I'll tell you where this becomes particularly important, Amy, is in blended families, second and third marriages. I was just uh, going to ask frequently- you about that because, right, I'm in a second marriage. Each of us came to 
our marriage with two children, uh, each before. And, uh, so, so that becomes more complicated because, okay, we own a home together. Something happens to one of us, but like all of the other assets and things like that. What about our children? And what about the fact that maybe things were promised before we came into this marriage? How do you sort through all that? Well, and in your particular case, Amy, you were married at a relatively young age. The dynamics shift if you were 65 when you got remarried. I mean, things are, every situation is a little different, and every couple has a different take on how they want to, to, this to play out. So some people may say, look, this may be a second marriage, but it's my commitment. I'm wholly committed to this person. When I die, I want everything to go to my spouse, and it's gonna, I'm going to trust them to do what I want them to do or to do the right thing, whatever that means. That's one approach. I would say, Amy, the more common approach that I run into is, you know, I love this man who I just married, my second husband, but I've got two kids from a previous marriage. That's a prior commitment, and those kids need my support and help more than my second husband does. He's okay. I want some or I want all of my assets to go to my children. Now, if your will says I leave all of my assets to my children, but your house is titled in your name and the name of your second husband, then when you die, the house is going to go to your second husband and not your children. And that's the point of, this, of, of today's discussion is that your will is limited. It doesn't take care of everything, and you need to be sure that all the details match your goal, match your, that they meet your objective. I'm a huge fan of open and honest conversations about money, about plans, goals, the future. And I think, hey, if, if you are in the situation with the second marriage, sit down. The two of you figure out together what you want to accomplish. Of course, we don't know all the, the legal ways to do that, but that's why we rely on people like you, Mark, right? And you've probably seen just about every kind of a way to divide assets that there possibly is out there. Well, that's right. And one of the things you'll find is that transparency with your children goes a long, long way, and it's kind of awkward. Kids don't really want to sit down and talk about your estate plan because kids don't want to think about your death. They don't want to think about their own death. And so be prepared to encounter some reluctance, ambivalence. Uh, there is going to be some awkwardness. Uh, don't be offended. Uh, it's not that they don't have an interest in this. It's not that they don't want to talk about it. Well, I guess it really is they don't want to talk about it, Amy, but not for the reasons you may think. Sure. It's more because they – it's sort of for all the right reasons, if I can use that old expression. Um, you have to sort of cut through that gently, politely. You have to at some point say, I know nobody wants to talk about this, but we got to do it. So put your hang-ups aside for a minute and talk to me. So much to think through, right, when it comes to estate planning. And that's why you cannot just check the box. I've got the will in place and think it's taken care of. There are beneficiary designations, so many other things to think through. Just make sure you've done all of your estate planning. You're listening to Simply Money tonight here on 55KRC, the talk station. You're listening to Simply Money. I'm Steve Sprovec along with Brian James are you ready to ditch gasoline for electric? Straight ahead, the pros and cons of buying an electric vehicle. You know, Brian, everybody's got dreams of retiring sooner than later. And if you've got some time, some time on your hands, let's take a look at some of the key principles to follow to get you there. 
right? So if you want to make financial freedom your number one goal, right? That's a pretty popular topic for us around here, isn't it? It's kind of like what we talk about all day, every day for our entire careers as financial advisors. But if that is your goal, then the number one thing you want to do is, uh, first of all, make sure you understand what you're trying to accomplish, right? It's a, it's a great thing to be able to say, I don't need to, I don't need to work anymore, but it's another thing it's a entirely big deal. to identify what does that mean? What do you need to spend on? And the number one thing to do there is, first of all, understand what you spend, uh, where your spending is. It's not about having that giant pile of money. I can show you plenty of people that have, uh, you know, a, a couple hundred thousand dollars and are going to be just fine. I've also know people that have five million dollars, but they live like they have 20 million dollars. So yeah. you have to understand what you're shooting at first and foremost. Yeah, I, I was reading uh, about a guy named Steve Adcock. You might have heard of him. Uh, he retired when he was 35 years old. And, and that's what he said was his number one priority what was financial freedom, and he wanted to achieve it by his mid-30s. The, the guy was making some good money as a software engineer, but he really tore into what will it need to take me to be able to retire that young. And his uh, the first uh, thing he did to, to attain his goal was he saved at least 70% percent, seven zero, 70 percent of his net income. I, I mean, for everybody else in the world that, you know, you, you got two dollars left over, if that when when the month is over, that's a pretty big deal. And that's not something that you just do, you know, willy nilly. He had to put a lot of effort into that. And did he have kids? I wonder if that, no. <laughs> that no. has an impact. Yeah. So step two, don't have children or anything else that eats. <laughs> so now this is an extreme example. It's a good yeah. story, but yeah, this is yeah. how it can be done. We can't all do it to this extreme of a level, but yeah, I mean, if you really want to, 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 to pull this off, you know, maybe you can't do it in your mid thirties, but it doesn't mean you have to work until you're 65, 70 years old. The, 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 uh, the, the ideas, the concepts are all the same. Try to boost your income. Depending yeah. on your industry, depending on your career, that might mean that you have to be willing to have scary conversations with your boss. Hey, I'm worth more. And it might mean you need to get out there and sniff around to see what other opportunities uh, that are out there. It doesn't mean you have to take a job or leave something, but just to have some idea of what your worth is uh, as, as an employee so that you can either go grab that new opportunity or go back to your boss and, and make your case. Hey, and, and, you know, what you and I do for a living is help with investing. And, and you've got to invest in appreciating assets. The stock market, it scares, it scares a lot of people. But that's one of the ways that you get growth in your investments over time. So you've got to invest in appreciating assets, not stupid things like I do every once in a while and buy a car that's going to do nothing but the exact opposite, depreciate in value. So invest in appreciating assets and automate, automate, automate. In other words, your 401k grows because you're automatically having payroll deductions made. You can do that in a taxable investment accounts with or without an investment advisor. The whole point is if you're out of the loop and you're not part of the decision making and it happens automatically, that money is going to tend to grow over the long haul and, uh, and help you retire at any age. Yeah. And remember, the uh, assets that appreciate will occasionally depreciate. That's what we're going through right now. It's yep. OK when these kinds of things happen. Cars almost always depreciate. Stocks and investments like that sometimes do. Be OK with it and understand the history and, and recognize it as an opportunity. You're listening to Simply Money on 55KRC, and I'm Steve Sprovac along with Brian James. We're talking about how you can retire early. It's, it's kind of like how do you lose weight? There aren't that many secrets in the case of losing weight. Eat less, exercise more. In the case of investing, spend less 
and invest more. That I mean, that's really what it boils down to. But also know where your money's going. Right. Exactly. And that starts with budgeting. That's the, that's the most important thing we talk to our clients about. We, we spend a lot of time building financial plans for people who are just about to retire, maybe one, two, three, four, five years out, or maybe they've just retired. But the first conversation we have is what, what's our target? What are we shooting at? What does it cost you to live? Don't tell me how much you spend at the grocery store because you're probably going to be wrong. We all lie to ourselves about that. Let's focus on what is your take home pay now? And then what's left over out of that cash at the end of every month? The difference is that's your actual real expenses, and that'll include everything that we're not thinking of. And if you're going to save up to 70% of your take-home, you're not going to do it just by cutting back a little bit. You're going to do it by cutting back a lot. Do you need cable? Can you do a streaming service for less? Have you checked your subscriptions? You automatic $5 or, or $10 a month for services like Netflix and Amazon and that sort of thing. Here's a Simply Money point. Retiring early is a doable endeavor if you stick to key principles required to achieve that goal. Coming up next, the pros and cons of owning an electric vehicle. You're listening to Simply Money on 55KRC, the talk station. You're listening to Simply Money. I'm Steve Sprovec along with Brian James. You know, if you own an electric vehicle, do you laugh when you drive by a gas station? Well, thousands are wondering whether it's time to go electric, but it's not all rosy. Let's look at some pros and cons. All right. So the first pro, well, this is kind of obvious. You're not paying. Uh, you're not paying for gas. So, with gas <laughs> being five bucks a gallon, hey, go figure. It, there's a vote in uh, in the column of the electric vehicle. There's no 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 questioning that. Really, obviously, you can save an awful lot of money uh, by using a different resource there. So, um, the the other. The other part of this is is maintenance. So so electric vehicles tend to be lower maintenance. So you don't need as much things like oil. Uh, you're not dealing with oil changes, uh, and brakes don't wear out as quickly either. So you're not replacing all these little things yeah. that that can really kind of add up on you. Yeah, there's a lot less going on. I, I mean, an electric motor is just a couple of moving parts instead of an internal combustion engine, and you know they're crazy complicated. But you know what? Everybody forgets, Brian, is it costs money for electricity. I I owned a Chevy Volt for a few years, and that was actually pretty cool. It got about you know 40 miles per overnight charge. All right, not that much, but most of my driving was back and forth to work, and and that was less than 40 miles. After you ran out of electricity, then it had a gas motor, so the gas engine would start up, and you, you could drive across the country if you you kept gas in the gas tank. So I didn't worry about the the range anxiety that people do with electric cars, but I did notice my electric bill went up about 30 bucks a night, and that was or 30 bucks a month, and that was on a relatively short distance of daily driving. So there, there's some cost there. Yeah, absolutely. And, and remember, uh, you, you mentioned the, the efficiency of not having as many moving parts in it. You know, there just isn't as big of an engine and so forth. I remember when Tesla was first a thing, this goes back 15 years. One of, one of the selling points beyond the mileage, of course, was just that. In other words, in a regular car, you need a, a, an engine the size of an engine that fills up the whole front end of the car. Yeah. Well, in a Tesla, it's about the size of a watermelon, the, 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 most co the biggest components of it there. So uh, that they basically restarted the auto industry from the ground up with that. Along with that, 
that came uh, a lot of, of since they could start over from the beginning, better warranties. So those batteries a lot of times come with an eight year, 100,000 mile warranty. So not as much risk there as you might perceive the way we're normally used to thinking about cars. Yeah, although I'm wondering what the used market is like if you see a Tesla with, you know, 85,000 miles on it, you know, okay, it's good for another 15,000 miles. But what happens after that? I, I, I think I think there's a lot of questions about what's going to happen to electric vehicles at the end of their lives. What's the cost of disposal? Can you replace that that uh, that battery that, you know, these are some of the concerns I have about going, you know, completely electric, never mind, you know, the range anxiety of running out of juice. Yeah, it's one it's one thing to worry about your cell phone that its battery may be shot, but this is another thing entirely <laughs> that you might be stuck in the middle of nowhere. You're listening to Simply Money on 55KRC, the talk station.